episode five of Signs, Cosines, and Tangents. We made it five weeks. Can you believe that? Well, I mean, we missed a week, so it's really been six weeks. Okay, I'm Jarbachev, and I'm Sean Signs. Yeah, I guess you are. I don't. I, you know, that doesn't a, work for me. I know so you need a. You you're need Jared, a and I'm Sean. Yeah, but like on the internet, all the cool kids know me as Jarbachev. Well. I've used the same handle since 1986. Yeah, it's a good one. Lord Apoc. Yeah. Why don't you use it? Because that doesn't fit with the title of the podcast. Oh, yeah. They would kind of get confused. <laughs> oh, anyway. Who's this, who's this Lord Apoc? I was, I was expecting... Is this a... Is, I was told there'd be no math. That, we did miss that reference last week. By we way. have. We need to talk more math so that we can scold ourselves. Um, no. No. No, that is not what this is about. <laughs> so, let's roll into our tangents this week, and I'll take off the first one, which is Doctor Who's back. Doctor Who is back after for... like two years of being gone. It was like a year. Well, if you don't count, the... it ended Christmas. We got a Christmas last year, and then it's back. So it's almost two years. Um, and so far, not so bad. I don't know. Are you a fan? I love Doctor Who. What do you love about Doctor Who, Jared? Please tell me. It's just different compared to everything in sci-fi. It just, it can do anything. It's a sandbox, if you will, for sci-fi stories. Wow. We'll come back to that. (laughs) Great plug for the rest of the episode. Sorry, sorry. They've already listening. You don't need to sell them on it. I I know. They're already here. Um, No, I just, Doctor Who's just, it's just crazy. You you never know what to expect in that show. I I think from episode to episode, it's almost like they switch genres. They switch themes. Everything changes. Everything. I mean, except the through plot and yeah, you know, the overarching story if they have one, which it's Stephen Moffat, so he always has one. Um, and then there's the uh, whole debate against uh, Russell T Davies and Moffat, and I'm not going to get into that today because I have been watching um, since the debut of the new series. So I've only seen the first episode of this season. The second one is aired Same. yesterday. Same. Um, and the one thing I did notice is that they're doing Emoji the Movie as a Doctor Who episode. Yeah. That was this week's episode that I haven't seen. Um, but let's go back and talk about what kind of Doctor Who's about. And, you know, so you've, you've got this really immortal old dude. He's really old now. Well, really, really old now. And he gets followed by young women most of the time. Uh, in this era, At least lately. it's been... Yeah. In the last 11 years, most of his companions have been young women. Yep. Um, and this latest young woman, uh, Bill, was that her name? Mm-hmm. Is, um, I guess she has an alternative lifestyle. She serves chips. Yep. At a college. Yep. That's what makes her interesting. I think that's the whole point of... Uh, in defense... Or no, I'm not defending anybody. Let's. I'm not going to say in defense. It's the wrong terminology. But I will say, compared to the last two characters in Moffat, Stephen Moffat is the current uh, show lead. The last two companions, we've had uh, the girl who waited and the impossible girl. And now we just have the girl who serves chips. The girl who serves chips. <laughs> Which, by the way, for our American audience, chips is fries. What? They're yeah. not chips? It's not potato chips. No. Can I have a soda pop? No. I want a Coke. What kind of Coke would you like? Uh, Pepsi? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, I enjoyed the first episode. I like how they got back into the swing of things without a lot of, you know, and I liked, uh, you know, they're, this is going to be the last before a new, the last season before a new showrunner takes hold of, this, of the show. Yeah, and it seems like most of the modern doctors have lasted only about three seasons. Yeah, I would, I was, I think everybody's hope was with Peter Capaldi, he would last a little longer. Um, and you know, I know BBC is getting heavily involved with the casting for the next uh, series. Well, I think there's more to it than that. I think it's that marketing there's more mistakes. All, it's it just seems like they're. They're trying to market the show without just letting somebody tell stories within Doctor Who. I mean, again, it goes back to what we said last episode. These are corporations that are trying to make money. Surprise. Well, and the BBC is actually a public entity. But BBC America is a co or joint company endeavor 
between NBC Universal and the BBC. Right. So yes, it's still a corporation trying to make money, mostly with its uh, international distribution. But everybody in Great Britain pays a license to have access to that content. Content. So it's part of your TV taxes or something like, weird like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to pay for TV. Wait. Oh, wait. Never mind. Yeah, we pay for TV tier here. <laughs> it's, it doesn't really matter. You mean I have to pay to watch advertisement? Advertisements? How do they say it in Britain? Advertisements. advertisements. Yeah. Yes. Not advertisement. Advertisements. Anyway. Anyhow, so I, I don't have much more to say. I'm, I'm excited to seeing how they're going to do the end of Stephen Moffat's reign. If I mean, they've already announced that the master um, played by John Sim is coming, coming back. back. Yeah. Um, which is exciting. My problem with this season is we already know it's going to end in a change of doctors. I wish they would just kind of surprise, a surprise. I, And I think we got that with the, the rebooted series. Nobody knew when Christopher Eccleston was going to regenerate in the tenant. Nobody it was expecting it that soon. They started with the ninth doctor and then all of a sudden it was sort of like, whoa. And um, I think every season since we've kind of known when it was going to happen. It's been a big buildup and it hasn't, you know, been. Which is interesting since the show's had overall declining ratings. And I think that goes back to why everybody's getting involved at this point. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, we talked about it previously. It, It came out, what, 2004, 2005, the new series? So we're on year 11. Yeah. So 2006. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where when it came out, it was different than everything else. And now it's generated this new level of fandom. It's big, huge. And for a sci-fi show, it's getting up into year 10, 11, like you said, um, which is typically where those shows sort of just die off and creativity. And it's hard to sustain them from a fan fan base without, you know, dramatically doing a spinoff or something like that. Well, they have done spinoffs. There's a new spinoff out called class, which I haven't seen. I don't think anybody's seen it stateside. It's on BBC America. I don't have BBC America anymore. Oh, my my cable provider has chosen not to agree with uh, their terms. Okay, this is getting a little personal, Sean. Yeah. Anyhow, by the way, it was like two thousand two, two thousand three. We got to remember there were another year gaps, kind of like this year. So, so I don't know. I mean, will they be able to sustain that level of fandom? I don't think so. I think it's just inherent to any sort of show or anything. It's hard to keep that core going. I mean, if you look at Stargate. Its viewership died off. No, um, it didn't. Yes, it absolutely did. Well, Stargate Universe wasn't very popular. No, I'm talking about Stargate SG-1. I mean, that was the reason that its viewership just died down. I think it was because of sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, that could be argued. And you had actors who wanted to go do something else. Mm. And the new characters they brought in were interesting, but not as interesting. Yeah, nobody's going to be David Tennant again. Yeah. It's, anyway, anyhow, let's move on to the next tangent, Sean. Yeah, this is yours. Explain to me what this is all about. So there is a series of puzzle platformers okay. for the Nintendo 3DS. Really? Yeah, yeah. They're made by HAL Laboratory, which you may know from the creator of the Kirby series. Yeah. Um, it's called Box Boy. The first one was called Box Boy. The second one was called Box Box Boy. And the last one's called uh, Bye Bye Box Boy. Um, they've come out since 2015. So three one, games in three, yeah. like one, one each year. And this is the last one in the trilogy. So, um, you know, it's like a four or five dollar game. Okay. And it's got a ton of levels. It's just a fun little simple pa- puzzle platformer. So if you had to compare it to, because this is not in quantity for me. I, I don't know anything about this game. Never even heard about it. It's on a 3DS, which whatever. Um, I, I own a few of them, but I don't play games on them. My kids do. These are for kids. Yeah. So what is it? Yeah. Explain the gameplay. So you take uh, your character's name is QB. He's a box with legs. That's all he looks like. It's very simple. Black and white presentation. And what he can do is generate a number of boxes in a row. Sort of think like Tetris where they kind of snake and you can do them any direction as long as they're connected. And it's a series of jumping over gaps with puzzles where you have to leave a box to activate a switch to get over to something. Um, and in the sequel, then you can create two sets of boxes. Okay. Um, and the last one, they have different properties like bomb boxes or phase time boxes. And each one adds like a new element in traditional Nintendo format where there's one where gravity's reversed. Mm -hmm. 
Um, is this only on the 3DS? It is only on the 3DS. It's a Nintendo property. Well, you have to add a link to it in the show notes. I will add a link. I, I think if you have a 3DS and you're looking for something quick to pick up and play, sort of like in, the, in lieu of a mobile game, it's it's definitely good. And they're, you know, just the amount of content in the game is really good. So it's like a modern Lemmings is what you're telling me. No, it's not like Lemmings at all. I'm trying to isn't Pikmin more like a modern Lemmings? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just I just want to put it out there. The last one came out. Um, you can start with any of them. You don't need to play them in any sort of sequence. But um, does it know. have a very deep story? No. Good. Your box. I think something's happening to the box world, and you save it by putting boxes down. So sacrificing your brothers and sisters. Yeah, that's not really explained in the story. They don't have eyes and legs like you do. But who knows? So you're a sentient box. Maybe it's like Yoshi and those are the eggs, you know? Are those actual Yoshis that he's pooping out? I don't know. Unfertilized Yoshis, usually. Ew. Ew. (laughs) So anyhow. The biology of Yoshi is not the topic of this episode. No. If you have a 3DS, I highly recommend it. Check it out. Uh, Let's move on to the next tangent. Okay. Starcraft. Starcraft. The original Starcraft. Is now free for everybody yes in preparation for the remix that we talked about remaster well okay it's a remaster you're right but uh the legacy starcraft legacy or anthology collection is completely free and this is crazy because i mean starcraft is you can go to a target i don't know about now but at least like a year or two ago you could go to a target and starcraft and brood war on a shelf in a battle chest in the battle chest um still selling diablo still selling yep it's crazy. It's all, it's like a mainstay of the PC like retail aisle. Well, and the funny thing is, the latest patch came out last week. Yeah, they're still patching. Just it. like Diablo 2. The latest patch for Diablo 2 was like a month ago. The Blizzard can never be faulted for abandoning games. And it just shows how much staying power these games have, too. Yeah, um, I think they'd probably be issuing patches for the Lost Vikings if they could. I've never played that series. That's on my list to play. You should. It's yeah. fun. Yeah. It's a good puzzle platformer. What? <laughs> and that's SNES, right? Was it only SNES? Or was um, it PC I believe as well? it was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I need to check that out. Anyhow, uh, are you guys going to pick up free StarCraft? It's free, guys. I can't pick it up. Why? I already own StarCraft. Yeah, I already do too. It's in my Blizzard game. I actually looked at it today. You know what I, we should do? We should get a bunch of cheap zip drives, flash drives, and download StarCraft and just hand them out at a Kroger. I, as a security professional, I don't recommend that. It could also be a security test, you know, <laughs> see how many people actually install. Yeah, just drop them in a parking lot and see who t- brings it in to play StarCraft on their work machine. All right, so moving on to the next tangent. I was actually producing most of the tangents this week. Uh, who? Who? What? I so, put that on there. Did you? Yes. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Okay. So last week we talked about our one dumb thing of Nintendo shutting down production of the NES Classic, even though it was in high demand. I know people that want one that aren't able to get it, um, and it's it's just gone now. Well, lo and behold, uh, a late a latest rumor from Eurogamer, which has a pretty good track record with these things, says there's an SNES Classic in the mix, in development, in production. So here's the thing. They had to use the exact same production line, so... We can't spin up new production lines. We can't alternate productions. Let's just cancel that old thing and do the new one. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, you know, once the, it's just going to be like, it's just going to be like when the SNES came out, nobody's going to want the NES classic. I mean, that's not true. That's not true. But well, and the, the interesting thing here is so, okay, you have to pick 20 or 30 really classic SNES games. That's easy to do. That's super easy to do. Now, what happens? Do they ever get the N64 classic? I doubt it. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think they'll they'll go above those two consoles. Maybe I could see them maybe releasing like a Game Boy handheld like fun little thing. That would actually make a lot of sense. Like yeah. a GBA classic or yeah. a Game Boy Color classic. Yeah. Color classic Game Boy. Or... And, you know, sell it at half the price or something. Yeah. I don't know. Or, well, they did that with Game & Watch, didn't they? Like a Game & Watch mini that you could that had all the Game & Watch games on it. Did they? I thought I saw something I think a few they had years like, ago. Yeah, maybe one or two or three games yeah. in one. So I don't, even as a Nintendo fanboy, I don't know how I feel about this because I this is the console I'd want a little classic version for. 
I also just want to buy these games on a Nintendo console. I don't want to have So let's talk about that a little bit. This goes back to something you were talking about last week, and and I believe it was one of our one dumb things as well, which is why would I need to buy one of these things if I would just buy the modern console that Nintendo puts out and play it on the virtual console? Yeah, I don't know. And why wouldn't... I don't know why they're not investing that time and money into promoting like a Netflix-type a subscription, subscription maybe? service for the Switch and be like, hey, you know all those gold games? They're all here. Eight ninety nine a month or $5.99. I mean like PS Now. Yeah. They're all there. You download them. You play them. The Switch is where you want to come. Oh, yeah. It's $300. And it's mobile. But it's mobile. For Take like three hours. Go. I think they would sell more. I think they could do that. They could also bundle it into a $60 bundle. Yeah. Well, they could cut the cost down because they don't have to manufacture hardware. So for thirty bucks, you get thirty games. Yeah, you know, and we it's we'll call it the NES Classic Pack. Exactly. I don't know why they're not doing that. Print money, please. I mean, the, if you look at just the NES Classic by itself, cool. It's a novelty. Get it up for a friend that doesn't play games that often. You're not going to be able to do that with every console, and it's going to sell. It's like, oh, cool. Nintendo's putting a little toy out because they had nothing to sell at Christmas time last year. That's true. Fine. Maybe they're preparing for Christmas this year. But because it's they want to market that on their new console and their new games for their new console. I so, said new console like four times in a row. Is it new? I think it's new. It might be. It's new. the new Nintendo Switch. <laughs> it's that old Nintendo Switch. It's already outdated. They, it comes they, with new, new Super Mario Bros. And it uh, comes with a different colored buttons. That's what makes it new. It's new. Um, I don't know. I don't. Could you ever imagine them putting one of these out where you can download more games? Where it's so, a virtual console and it's a virtual console device only. That's one of the big gaps, right? Everybody recognized that when the NES Classic came out. I don't... Again, the what's the Nintendo Axiom? My, my Nintendo Axiom? Yes. If you think it makes sense and it's a good idea, Nintendo will never do it. Okay. So, I don't even have to say anything. And, and, and I, I agree. It's just, I just don't think it's going to happen. I think right. this is going to have the same problems as the NES Classic. It's going to show up. It's going to be hard to get, and then it's going to be gone. So, all right. Last tangent today. Yes. Um, I want to talk about this one a little bit because I want to expand it beyond what you wanted to put in no, the show notes. Oh, okay. That's fine. The MCU is expanding once again, this time on ABC Family. No, 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 no. That's not what it's called anymore. Freeform. Freeform. Yeah. Um, with a new series. Uh, about Cloak and Dagger. Okay, so here's why I want to expand this. First off, we don't know that it's actually in the MCU. That's true. We also, if we count on Marvel Television being as integrated as they have been so far, it'll have nothing to do with the other shows. There'll be some throwaway mention. Oh, look, New York happened. But they are standing kind of in an interesting position to create a freeform MCU. Because the show that's following this one... The New Warriors? Is the New Warriors. Which, of course, they're marketing as the Squirrel Girl series. But, you know, Speedball's in there, too. And all those guys who caused the original Civil War that nobody who doesn't read comics knows about. Oh, yeah, those guys. I forget the the third-tier Marvel people. Well, it's not only that. I mean, they were were the Marvel teen group, kind of like the Teen Titans, but not as cool. And you also had this whole concept, especially before the original comic book Civil War took off, where the the New Warriors had become a reality TV show. So they're taking that premise and they're using that to do the New Warriors stuff. But let's backtrack to Cloak and Dagger because we haven't really talked about that. Um, Cloak and Dagger is a series that came out in the late 80s, uh, focusing on two runaways. One, a wealthy young white girl and a poor uh, urban gentleman, African-American, and the two of them basically falling victim to experimental drugs that were tested on them. That's very 80s. Well, they were trying to talk about the hard point of living on the streets and the runaway problem that was a very 80s thing. It's obviously still happening. But now we talk about white slavery and human trafficking. We don't talk so much about the drug culture, um, but there was the evil Roxxon Corporation had experimented on these teens along with a bunch of other teenagers and street people who nobody would ever miss. Right. 
But what it did is it activated their latent mutant abilities. I'm going to be surprised if they actually come out and say that they are mutants. Because they are. They're not. Yeah, I figure because Fox has got the rights to all the mutant stuff. Or- yeah, they, they literally can't say mutants for, <laughs> fo- without a, being a Fox-proof series. So for a while there, Cloak and Dagger were on the periphery of the X-Men comics. Um, but they never really fully got integrated there either. They've had a few comic book series. It, it's kind of this weird... Um, well, again, kind of out on the outskirts of everybody else. It's never been a major mainstream success. So it's an interesting choice for a series. Well, I think it makes sense with the network it's on. They're looking for a teen drama. Let's look for some teen superheroes. And, and the special effects are going to be pretty cheap. Yeah. And they don't fight major supervillains. Right. They fight like drug dealers and pimps and people on the street who are exploiting other people. I'm I'm definitely intrigued by this because it does look different than everything else we've seen in the quote unquote MCU. But it also has, I mean, it's just another show. It's just like, is it going to be worth watching? So here's what I think is interesting. This has the potential to be the hybrid of like the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., brightly lit, pristine world and Luke Cage, you know, somewhere in between those two. And I just I don't know if they could pull it off. And I mean, I don't, I mean, unlike Netflix, is this going to be 10 episodes, 13, 20? I mean, do we know? Um, I think it's 13. Okay. For the first season and, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I think, I think we'll wait and see. The trailer looked interesting. And I mean, they definitely did reference rocks on, um, in the trailer. Yeah. Um, and you see cloak get his, you know, trademark cloak though. It's not blue and black striped, Yeah, which is fine with me because I always thought that looked funny. Right now, I'm giving it a preemptive rating of meh. I'm waiting to see if Dagger has a boob window. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of pervy because of my age. But That is really pervy. But the age when they came out, uh, well, Rick Leonardi was the key artist who launched the series years and years and years ago. And he had a kind of balletic style with his art. She always looked, because she was a dancer, right? And so she was always in these weird, exaggerated poses that Jim Hines would try and mimic at a convention and probably throw his back out you don't know anything about what i'm talking about i don't but maybe your audience does (laughs) that's what's important so that's all i've got for tangent shans well i think that wraps it up for this week we should move into our main conversation thread i think we just call it a topic sean sure So we chose that music for a reason. What was that reason? Um, Final Fantasy is really a good game. Well, that's not the reason. I, I won't disagree. And that's music from Final Fantasy X, which will come to a specific point. What we thought we'd talk about this week is game worlds and the mechanisms and settings that you know a lot of games employ to kind of bring gamers into their storytelling. And so you kind of can classify these into a, a broad set, probably three very broad categories. You have your open world games, which is where you basically take the player and you set them down on a basic story and send them to go and they can encounter other things. Good example of that being Skyrim or any of the Bethesda games. You have sandboxes, which are similar to open world, except that the player has agency and can actually change, modify, and, and you have immersive, or not immersive, emergent storytelling, where the creators of the story are the players. You kind of make your own story. Far Cry would fall into that, maybe? Uh, Far Cry, I think, is more of an open world. I'm thinking something more along the lines of uh, Terraria, Minecraft, Lego Worlds, those types of games. And then you've got the third one, which is linear game worlds. Uh, and that's where Final Fantasy X comes in. And especially its sequel, Final Fantasy XIII, which is the game that puts you on a railroad track from the beginning until like five minutes from the end. Yeah. And uh, I thought what we'd talk about this week is how these game worlds kind of affect the way that we tell stories. Um, There's a recent game that kind of brought this to mind, and you haven't had a chance to play it yet, but we talked a little bit about 
uh, Mass Effect Andromeda. And, you know, in the past, you and I, not on the podcast, have talked about Dragon Age and how Dragon Age kind of evolved. And Bioware is known for tightly scripted, um, impactful stories. And Mass Infected, uh, Mass Effect Andromeda, I'm just completely tongue-tied, is a change from the way they've typically done that. In that it's an open world game. And the previous Mass Effects were closer to a linear experience. And from my perspective, I don't see why they made it open world. Because that's what's selling now. You've got your Zero Horizon Dawns, your Witchers, your Breath of the Wilds, your... Uh, everything seems to be open uh, open world. It's... Yeah, but that decision was made long before those games hit the market. It takes yeah, five I mean, years No, to make I don't disagree with you, but I mean, I think that decision... I mean, everybody was making that decision five years ago with... You have your Assassin's Creed's, uh, all those games. That and the Far open, Cries. And, Far Cries, yeah. you, all the Ubisoft games. Um, you know, people, any, anything, cause they market, they market game time as a value as a, oh, you can spend 80 hours in this game. And that, that's a selling point for some least, games. That's pr- wonderful. But you want to lose yourself. You know, I think they focus too much on that. Um, the big industry does in general. So what makes a good open world game for you? Um, a good open world game should have a variety of content, a variety of stories or side quests that aren't the same and limit no fetch quests. <laughs> That's for the MMOs, right? Well, I mean, that 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 fell over into the open world stuff. Yeah. And, and maybe not fetching, but go do this generic task that you'll have to do 10 different times in this open world, as opposed to changing up the gameplay or taking advantage of the gameplay in a new in a new way. So I would say that Mass Effect definitely falls into that trap. Uh, the side stories are largely not impactful on the central themes, whereas The Witcher, Witcher 3, completely owns it. And the side stories are all individually interesting. And while they may not change the main plot, right, they affect the character. Yeah, and I think... <sighs> I don't know. I keep doing that. Um, <laughs> that's that's the thing I have with side quests. If they're not interesting and they don't tell a story or, or something meaningful, well, the point of a side there, quest oh. is to make you feel like you're in a living world, right? To expand the world beyond the narrative of the main thread, just to branch out on the different paths to areas. Oh, this area. If you've just followed the main storyline, you're not going to go there. But hey, there's a side quest that involves something very important there. Let's go there and see what's going on. That's cool. When it's, oh, we need to go do this generic quest. We need to get reconnaissance for this area. Or you need to go up to the top of this tower. Okay, so another game where I think... I want to challenge the reconnaissance thing. Challenge. Shadow of Mordor. The whole point of uncovering the map was that reconnaissance. But... I haven't played the game yet, but let's talk about the what the main thing of that game is, is it's war. Yes. You, you're waging war against Mordor. You are battling. So reconnaissance and the battlefield, the entire world is a battlefield. So the reconnaissance makes sense in that context. Think of Assassin's Creed. You're an assassin. You assassinate people. But really? Yeah, surprisingly. That's... I thought you just jumped off tall buildings. Well, that's that's the second thing is you go, you know, into <laughs> a, into a bale of hay, you know, More as this Gravity tradition. doesn't work. But in those games, you would think, oh, I've got to recon. I've got to learn about the area before I can do it. And the games did that to some extent. But for the most part, it was like, oh, there's a tower there. Oh, there's a merchant there. There's a merchant here. Oh, go up to that tall lookout. And it has nothing to do. It's not a side quest. It's not a story. Yeah, but it didn't fall into like the infamous trap where you were collecting shards. It all did. Over the it did. Those games had the shards. Well, you had the feathers. Yeah. No, they had the shards, the memory fragments, all that bullshit. Yeah. Excuse my language, audience. But... Oh, my God. You have to put a uh, adults-only rating on this. And I liked the Assassin's Creed series. At least I liked one and two, all the twos. Yeah. <laughs> All the Etsy. So I, I'll say uh, Black Flag, I think, is a great game. And I started Black Flag, um, and I like the beginning. I probably got maybe 50 to 
percent complete with like the main stories and side quests, and I was mm-hmm. just like, eh. I'm so done. for me, it was all about the um, the naval missions, but those started to run together. That's true. Those started to run together. Whaling same, missions versus they didn't give you pirates and you know once you got your ship upgraded and it was like oh my cannons more powerful or my defensive I just have more HP for my ship the gameplay didn't change and it it became not fun because at a certain point the harder ships were just stronger and had higher HP there was no mechanic there was no maneuvering yeah, the tactics like, didn't evolve exactly it's just okay do I get to the side wait for my cannons to reload and blow them out of the water right. and it. You know, the, I will admit... Which, by the way, is the way naval warfare actually worked. No, but... I I know. It, it, <laughs> it represents that well, but do you want to... How often do you want to do that? You know, if I'm thinking of a naval warfare game, okay, I'll go play that, but do I want to play that for 80 hours? That's the question. Maybe not. You know, when those, when those skirmishes take 10 minutes at a time, do I want to play that? And to be fair, I mean, there's games out there that focus on that, like World of Warships. Which you would get a different class of ship, and it has a different gameplay and a different tactic. Right. So to your point, you know, you, it's not like you jumped off your big man of war or corsair and jumped into a sloop and went skirting around in the Caribbean to take out the Spanish ships or the English ships. So, point well taken. And and I think Far Cry fell into that kind of rut too. I mean, I think any open world game has to have. And it even goes back to like pre-open world when you think of the Zeldas, the Metroid games, where you have a large world where you go back to areas. We'll call mm-hmm. it backtracking, whatever you want to call it. The idea is the beginning game um, is difficult. Yeah. It's hard. You can't go over there yet because you don't have the experience, the skill, the armor, etc. to go to an area. But by the end game, you know, how does it keep your interest? So... Let's talk a little bit about why would you want to play that game beyond the main story thread? Let's talk about a set of games where you almost don't care about the main story, which is almost every Bethesda game in the last 10 years. Yeah, Sky- Skyrim was like, oh, I'm just going to go over here for a while. What? There's a whole quest line. That's nothing to do with the main story. Yeah. Um, the I don't, factions. The... I, I got to wonder what the percentage of people who actually completed the main storyline in in Skyrim was. I don't think I've done it. I've put hundreds of hours into the game. I, I would argue uh, Breath of the Wild is similar. I don't want to bring it up too much because I'll get scolded and beaten after the show. But, you know, you have like four main story quests in that game, but everything else is supplemental at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's up to building your character, your armor, your items, etc. But, um, you know, it does that Skyrim, Fallout, you could argue, again, Bethesda. Um, yeah. And then Witcher you know, is is just a very narrative story, character-developed game. Well, and the thing I love about The Witcher is that you just kind of fall into activities. You, you go around, you, you start off on a mission, and you think you're going to go do something, and then all of a sudden something distracts you, and you forget what you were going to do. And, and if, unless you force yourself to have discipline and stay on that path... Well, and the game doesn't penalize you for it. It's like, oh, hey, you don't forget about that main story quest. Or, oh, you can't go over there yet. You haven't unlocked this. Which is obviously a story yeah. story concession. Because if you were actually playing the game in real time, every time you got off the main track, somebody was probably going to die. So let's talk about open world influence. And a, an example I brought up to you, and let's talk about a linear game. A linear, a, a linear game such as Halo 5 came out okay. a few years ago. Um, and Halo games were known for their very linear, linear experience, getting mm-hmm. you to a set a set piece. But they're shooters, and that's typical and FPS, of shooters, right? Um, and then you have the former developer of the Halo series, um, Bungie. Bungie, who mo- moved off and made Destiny, which is a weird hybrid, exactly, of an open world and they a linear took, game. They took open world concepts but then scripted sequences inside of that open world, the large areas. We don't want to say it's fully open world, but... So I would almost say it's it's an open world game in the fact that you have kind of hub maps and you can go do missions, which are all repetitive, just like side quests. Right. Um, but you also have tightly scripted story beats, and which is your story missions. And then you have raids, and then you have, you know... Sort of MMO tropes. MMO-style yeah. things. Yeah, Destiny is a very weird mix of things. Right. Um, and it's taken a while for it to actually kind of catch on with a lot of people. And it makes you wonder what they're going to do with Destiny 2. Are they going to do an open world? 
you know, is are the is it going to be the same thing where you have those hub worlds, or are you going to be able to go to a planet with a very much kind of if you see it, you can go there a larger area. I don't want to say open world too much. I doubt they'll do that, but you, you get what I'm going at is yeah. where you're kind of on that patrol and you go over there and something you know there's like a quest line over in that area. I don't know. I another example of a game that's kind of like that it's very linear but it's not is doom the new yeah, doom the latest doom yeah if you run from map end to end on a map it's absolutely linear but there's all these little nooks and pockets. crannies and pockets and alternate routes and and that and that goes back to sort of old school thinking right it's a level it is a level you don't once you are done with that level you're done you go into the next level yeah absolutely stages whatever you want to call them um and it goes into stage exploration. Think of a Mario game. Let's let's let's. Uh, and, uh, sorry. Um, really, I know. I thought we agreed not to do this. I, I know. But think of think of a platformer. Let's just say <laughs> a platformer. Yes. Um, you know, like Banjo Kazooie. Banjo. No, that's a bad one. <laughs> um, or Conquers Bad Fur Day. Your your goal is to get to point A to point B. Yes. Right. And you know, you speedrunners just go to point A B. But those games don't thrive on just putting challenges they want you to kind of explore what's up here oh there's a different alternate path sonic for sonic, example yeah there's like sonic 3d yeah there's three no god sonic 3D. <laughs> um I'm, I'm punishing you for bringing this up by the I way know. I, i'm sorry so there's multiple paths and in a sonic game you want to be on the top path because that's usually the hardest to do but the least uh challenging yep so to speak but or the, I guess the less resistance. I don't well, want to say to be fair, Mario's always had that too. Right. There's secrets, warps, etc. Yeah. Okay. Go back to Doom. Doom had elements of that where right. you had power-ups, um, keys, or guns, weapons, etc. Um, that you could power up your character. Skill points. And then they had the mini challenges in the game. Yes. Didn't want to do them. That's fine. They're optional. But you're right. It felt more expansive than... Well, and this leads into the next category I want to talk about because yeah. Doom also is a sandbox game. You think so? In its multiplayer, it's sandbox. Players have the ability to create their own levels and kind of customize with widgets. Or is that level creation? Um, I think it I borders would, would, more on sandbox. I would separate the two. A sandbox, when I think of a sandbox, I think of, what, like you mentioned, Minecraft, Terraria. Um, games where you... Maybe Sim, uh, SimCity sandbox. Simbox, sandbox simulation, but right. sandbox. Or even The Sims. Yeah, The Sims, Sims is a sandbox. You know, where you... There is no we give you the toys and what you do there with them. There is no end goal. You know, there are challenges. There are things in the game, but there is no end point. The game doesn't end. Right. Um, whereas Doom has a very clear level, get to A to B, get to the end. So what would you call something like Subnautica or Ark? I have not played Subnautica. Okay, what about Ark? I have not played Ark. Okay, I'm not going to go back to Breath of Fire. Oh, I'm not. No, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> I haven't played. You need games. to play some more variety in your life. I'm working on it, Sean. I'm working on. We building... need to get you an intervention. I think so. Audience, make sure you come over to my house and, and give me an intervention. You have hundreds of games, and you're not I know. branching out. I know. But anyway, okay. So sandboxes. You're right. It's it's about. We give you the tools or you have an emergent world where you can build your own things. Um, the you reason know, people can play Minecraft, despite its visuals, right, in the modern era, or despite anything else, is that you have this sense of agency. You can do whatever you want. As long as you can work within the rules of the universe, you can make giant buildings. You could be an architect. You can go to the Enderverse. You can re recreate the USS Enterprise yes. to scale. And you can make working, you know, machines in that game, and and there's all these other little things. But I mean, in Doom, you can you can uh, what do they call that? Auto snap? What do they call it? Snap yeah, map. Snap map. Snap map. You know, they they give you components to make your own single player levels or mm -hmm. your own multiplayer arenas, right? But ultimately, in the single player, you know, you're crafting a level, 
an experience in A to B. So you're modifying an existing map. Exactly. Okay. I and, see the difference. You know, in multiplayer, you're making a multiplayer arena. It's the same thing. You, you could look at Super Mario Maker. The end goal is to get to the flag, whatever challenges or rules. You're living within the realms of those rules. Like with Doom, if you're Snap Map, it might be a CTF map. It so I wouldn't be... call that sandbox. I yeah. would call it more just like uh, user-generated content for an existing type of okay. game or platform. So that's the type of game world we didn't think about. Yeah. Um, but when we talk about sandboxes, there's just this thing that attracts so many people. And I'm not always sure I'm one of those people that can just play Conan Exiles or Ark or Subnautica where I build my own base and I'm just kind of exploring the world. I think it, I, I played a lot of Minecraft when it came out. I mean, I remember playing it back when it was in beta on a PC when I had a PC. Um, even set up my own Minecraft server, so those people don't remember when I had a PC. I run a Minecraft server in the house when I play. But I, I think it's an ebb and flow, right? We come to these sandbox games, we go away from them, we come back every time. Well, there's no penalty for walking away from it. Exactly. You can go back to Minecraft any point. It's like riding a bike, and you can do whatever you want in that game. And those games work really well when you have another person involved. Yeah. If it's just yourself, okay, cool. I built the USS Enterprise, and I built, you know, Helm's Deep, one to one, no big deal. Um, <laughs> it took me two years, but yeah, I did. It took me two years of my time of placing blocks. And I think it's like you know, I always think of Minecraft specifically as digital Legos. The yeah, appeal no, of it is. Lego, Legos. which is what Lego Worlds is. Yeah, <laughs> it's Lego Minecraft after Legos. Yeah, and the the latest reviews I've seen for that is uh, it's cool, it's neat, but it doesn't have that sort of appeal. I think it's a it's a limit. So Lego has tried to recapture the Minecraft thing three times. I know, and it hasn't worked. It hasn't. So they should just stick with the Traveler Tales well, games. Doesn't it make sense? Legos are a physical element. Yeah, right. They are a physical toy. And I remember, I well, remember, and the interlocking and the way things intermesh for Legos is is very tactile, like you yeah, said. Yeah, it's very a tactile experience. You're playing, you're you're making toys. Minecraft, there that that's gone. Minecraft is more like sculpting. You're sculpting, carving you out of have, existing things. You have you're building. an existing world universe where there are storms, there's clouds, there are mobs. Yeah, there's biomes. Well, and it's resource gathering at its yeah most basic and you know back when minecraft was cool uh, I, th- I still think it's cool but i just want to say that but you didn't know how to make you had to figure things, things out there was an exploration element yeah um which was pretty cool okay so let's flip. let's go back let's go back so we've talked about sandbox we've talked about open world what about linear linear experiences in 2017 do they have a do they have a place? i think they absolutely do i think a tightly scripted game that introduces an interesting world. Your Bioshocks. Bioshock Infinite is a great example of that. Yeah. There are a lot of people who kind of knock it for a story a little bit, but it is a, it, it's focused on telling a story, right? And it says, I'm going to show you this world. There's little pieces of the world that matter to the story. And I'm going to let you play in it. But ultimately, you're here to tell the story of that character. It'd be like if you released a new Half-Life, Half-Life 3, not real, but... You know, you wanted to see Gordon Freeman's next journey or, you know, one yeah, of these... Half-Life, both the Half-Lifes were very scripted, you know, linear The paths. Last of Us. The sequel to The Last of Us. Oh, coming. The Last of Us. I love that. That is, an, that is a masterpiece of video game yeah. storytelling. It is. and But it still has fun, engaging gameplay that you don't mind doing over and over. And it increases the difficulty and the tactics. But it's progressive. Correct. So once you've gotten out of New York City, you're out of New York City. Right. Right. You don't go back and go farm things and uh, and all the things you tend to do in an open world or sandbox game. You move forward because the storylines move forward. In some ways, the Telltale Adventure games. I was going to bring are, that up. Any of the walking simulators. I don't like to call them that, but. <laughs> well, I mean, the Guardians story. of the Galaxy game, the Batman game, the, the Borderlands adventure, adventure games. games yeah also they're tightly scripted the world is very uh, you have some agency right you can choose where you want to go and to some extent even um persona fits into this yeah because you have fixed map points and you have maps and they're story driven and you go forward 
let's let's roll it back to Final Fantasy. Okay. I my my favorite game in that series is Final Fantasy VI. I think mine is probably Final Fantasy VI as well, closely followed by ten, which is not a popular game for some people. Right. Um, and now, would you call Final Fantasy VI for its era very linear? It was open, open world, world for its area era, but it's a linear game. Right. There are side quests, mm-hmm. but there's a linear story that you go through that happens and changes the world. Now, Final Fantasy VII. Yes. The same thing, but with updated visuals, right, for the most part? Uh, I would argue that. I think it's much it's more, more linear. Or more linear. So the thing about the Final Fantasy games, and this is where it's challenging, the there's sections of each of these games. Final Fantasy nine final fantasy seven eight six all of them have large components that are open world so once you get to a certain point in the game you get freedom and they have artificial walls right to prohibit you from advancing to an area that you're not ready for but at some point those walls come down right and you can always go back to an area for the most part where you visited well think about anytime you get the airship right that changes the whole game i'm glad you brought that up so you go Final Fantasy six, seven. We don't mention eight's name. Um, nine, nine. And then you get yeah. to ten. Ten was the first in the new console generation on the PS two. And I remember playing ten. I like ten. I've not beaten it, but I've gotten really close to the end. It's a linear, absolutely. Story. It is completely linear. You don't really ever go back to an area you've been. It is. It is an adventure you're going from, and that's fine. But it's it, the story is a journey. Right, you're on a you're on a pilgrimage, but if you if you take and nine, to be fair, you can go back to the Thunder Plains and try and dodge lightning as much as you want. Yeah, anytime you want, you can do that. It's it's <laughs> why a fun would you want to? Game. I don't know. But if you take nine games previous to it, yeah, that were sort of more, let's say you know they were a little more open, mm-hmm. and then you go to the newest generation, and I'm doing visuals for Sean right now, but you go to a new hardware new power and you shrink that sort of so to speak you kind of compress that experience and yeah for the story it makes sense but for a final fantasy game i i was taken aback by so i've i've grown to like final fantasy let me give you a counter argument counter dragon quest yep dragon quest 7 came out after final fantasy 10 it is an open world game it feels open world and it still has a tight storyline you know, you're trying to find out how to uncurse the king. And uh, you have these adventurers and they develop and, and it's you're wandering around just like the traditional Final Fantasy VI design. I don't think the Dragon Quest games have ever moved away from that. I'm not talking about Final or Dragon Quest. Let's, I'm talking Final Fantasy, the core of Final but Fantasy. But I think where you were going, and tell me if I'm wrong, Okay, was you were saying you're on this new hardware, you're doing this new visual fidelity, and that kind of drove them towards a linear approach. I was going to say, no, I don't think that drove them towards that. I, I'm, when that first came out, I said, why? Why are they doing this? I have... I have come to appreciate Final Fantasy X more in time, just like I've come to appreciate... I love the battle system. Majora's Mask. When Majora's Mask came out, and this is going to be... I did not like it when it came out. Okay. I was like, this isn't Zelda? Oh my gosh. It it felt much more restrictive. Yeah. Now, if you're a younger person, Mm -hmm. are appreciation or scope of what we want is a little more limited. Would you agree? Disagree? Yeah. Or expectations. Expectations are very different. I mean... When you're younger. Well, you have more time. Yeah. So, and and maybe this is a whole other topic, but I was okay with wandering on... And and if you go back and play Final Fantasy 1 or 2, they're very small games. They are. You actually can complete them in like 15 hours. But they're these sprawling RPGs. And I think that there's kind of a lot of bloat that happened yeah. over time. Let's let's be clear. There is a ton of bloat in Final Fantasy games. Yeah, they're open world or whatever, but there's a ton of bullshit. Well, you farm. You if st- you look at Final Fantasy VII specifically, 
And I was just, you know, everybody remembers Final Fantasy VII. It was so good. They're remaking it for the PS4. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to go back. No, there was a bunch of bullshit mini games in that game <laughs> that had nothing to do with anything. It's That's like you true. Have to, and you had to do them. All the gold saucer stuff. Oh, all the snowboarding mini game. All of that. It was. It wasn't good. And, and all of the Final Fantasy card games that they keep trying to make happen. Yeah, Tetramaster, and you know all of those. So I mean, there's. The, I don't know where I'm going. But it's padding, right? Right. It's not necessary for the core storytelling. Right. But they forced it on you because they wanted you to, to use the stuff it. they made. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't so, know. We're talking Final Fantasy. And now we're seeing Final Fantasy 15 yes. that went full open world. Yes. Right? It did. So it kind of came back around. It, until you get towards the end of the game. Yeah, end content where they kind of rushed it out the door, I think. In that. Well, no, I don't think it's that. The end content, there's a time jump near the end of the game, and I don't, I don't want to spoil it for everybody, right. but I think there's been a lot of talk about that. Because the game starts in the future, and then it jumps back. Okay. Right? So you finally catch up with the beginning of the game. There's a time jump. And it is linear at that point, because you're basically on a rail, and you're being you're, you're wrapping up the story. And that's fine. If it's not the majority of the game, you can do linear sequences. That's fine. But I mean, overall, the series came back round from Final Fantasy thirteen. Yeah, but it, it it is guilty of doing exactly what you hate. Yeah. Go out and kill X number of monsters for a bounty. To build up your bounty. There's a lot of grinding in Final Fantasy fifteen. And I would expect that from a JRPG. Grinding grinding and fetch quests or whatever are kind of two different things, right? If you're going out if if a if a JRPG has a interesting battle mechanic or mm-hmm. skills or tactics, that's fine. It's not for everybody. Let's be but um that's different than the uh you've got to go over here and talk to this person before you can go to this area. Oh, I talked to them. They well, gave me this it, scroll. The scroll says that I have permission to go over here now. And again, the typical JRPG combat system is really Rochambeau. Yeah. It's it's rock, paper, scissors. Right. And and matching and pairing all of those things. And risk versus reward, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's wrap this up. Okay. How do we wrap this up? What, do we have a point to what we're saying? Because I'm sitting no, here. No, I think we just wanted to kind of explore all these different options and talk a little bit. So where I think that these games are important and the way that you tell a story is important is to find the right way to tell the story. So you can tell The Last of Us as a linear game. I don't think you could tell that story as an open world game. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think Mass Effect Andromeda should have been an open world game. And and I'll have people go, well, you're trying to heal these worlds and fix about, these problems. You know, we didn't talk about it, but No Man's Sky. We're talking open. So it's a sandbox. It's a sandbox. That's a sandbox game. That's not an open world game. Because... Uh, well, there's rumors that it's about to get a backstory and an actual plot in the next <laughs> patch. Um, and actually, they've built a lot more of the sandbox tools in that were promised originally. Right. To the point where I almost don't want to play it anymore. Right. Because I played it after launch and everybody was disappointed. I wasn't. I would put on my trippy space music and just kind of wander around plan- planets just killing time to relax. Right, but it was, again, that goes back to our whole padded out. They created an entire planet. Cool, but the entire planet's the exact same. Yeah. Right? Well, it's the Star Wars problem, and where I mean, each planet only has one biome. That's that's fine, but there's interesting places to go on those planets, you know. We um, think. We, we think. don't know. We don't know. <laughs> um, and I think this is the last. I, I did. I haven't played it yet. I did buy it. I've seen a lot of talk about ukulele. Mm-hmm. We talked about it a little bit previously, but I think we're talking about open world and linear. The um, banjo, you know, it's inspired by Banjo Kazooie and 64. And those games were very tight um, where you could go anywhere, but the levels were very tight knit. And once you did something, you were Yeah, the first one. Right. The Uh, first one. The last one was not. Nuts and Bolts was much more of an open world game. Exactly. This is where I'm going. And then Banjo Tooie. That's the that's the black sheep of the series. So the people were you're kind of it divided the fan base, so to yeah. speak, because Banjo Tooie was a lot bigger. And at the time, we're we're still talking about this stuff today. People felt like, oh, cool, it's bigger, but there's nothing in between. Yeah, right? which is the way Mass Effect feels, actually. Right. So I think this is this is just an ongoing problem in video games where 
expectations are bigger, bigger worlds. Bigger. I think it comes down to production. I think more space requires more content. Content is expensive. But games need to come out every three years. And there you get into, you know how you solve the content problem? Procedural generation. Look how that worked for No Man's Sky. It didn't. Exactly. You need a cultivated experience. Even in an open world game, you need a cultivated experience. And I do want to touch on one more Zelda point. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. You've Sean, already blown your Nintendo quota for the day. Sean will stab me after the No, show. I won't. I'm not a violent man. Think think of what's your... <laughs> Skyrim. Well, Let's yes. talk Skyrim. It's a very sculpted world. Yes. Right. It, and it ironically, just... if you look at the Elder Scrolls series historically, each game has gotten smaller. Yeah. Geographically. But there's a density of activity. A density, and you can tell it's handcrafted. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think of another open world game, or not even open world. Uh, Destiny. Yes. I don't ha- I mean, there are sculpted areas, but the larger areas feel a little bland to me. Like, when you're. Well, on- no, they're, they're generic. Yeah, they're very generic. So, like when you're in Russia at the Cosmodome. And you go out the back door and you see every once in a while a spider walker shows up and you blow it up with four other people. And then there's all of these fallen that always show up and they get dropped off on ships when you kill all of them. It, it, it felt the like same. it didn't feel as handcrafted. Well, and, and I think there's also another problem is as those open areas open up, you've just got like random variations of enemies. Right. And you're left going, okay, I know exactly what's going to spawn here. I'm going to farm them. I'm going to get what I want out of them, and I'm going to go do something else. And I would even say the Assassin's Creed games, for the most part, those felt procedurally generated. To uh, some extent, you know, they, they weren't. I mean, obviously, they're based on real-world areas, right? But you've the got, missions were variable. You've got your landmarks. But, I mean, yeah. the city streets, they just felt samey. I mean, they were obviously very samey. Yeah. Um, well, that, again, goes back to cost. Yeah. You know, how much time can I put into crafting every inch of Venice? I can't. It, it's just, I'd never get the game out. I have two years to turn a game around instead of 10, and we'll see. You know. And uh, one, one, one last open world game where I didn't think we thought to mention uh, Forza Horizon. I love Forza Horizon 3. All of them. I love 1, 2, and 3. The, the open world. Yeah, but games. Forza 3, you completely can go anywhere. It's almost like the Burnout Paradise. Right? It is. You, you had oh, all burnout. of. Oh, that's a good, good, you know, we went from very linear, you're going on this course, and then they said... Well, oh, no. it wasn't even that. The original burnouts were, you're going to do this gameplay mode. Yeah, yeah. And this fixed thing to do this. Yep. And then by the time you got to Burnout Paradise, it's just like, go anywhere you want in Hawaii, and you'll find something to do. And it was different, and it felt handcrafted. I I, I think we, it, it, you're right. It comes down to production costs and how much time people want to spend in developing these worlds. Yes. And I think the games that we think about and talk about over the course of time mm-hmm. are those worlds that were given that love and that, that time. See, I can't say I have a favorite out of any of these three. I think it suits the game. I think, it depends on the game. Well, you know, a common question that people, video gamers, like to think about, if you could live in any video game universe, which one would you live in? So I would definitely not live in The Witcher because that's <laughs> just not a nice place. Um, probably would be Mass Effect for me or Star Wars, one of the two. Okay. Old Republic era Star Wars, classic Star Wars, right. not this new whatever it is. What about you? I'm not going to answer that. You're not. I, I, <laughs> would you like me to answer it for you? No, I think it's fine. I think everybody it changed, knows. Mine changes over time. You know, I yeah. play a new game and I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Well, okay. So let me be clear. The original trilogy Mass Effect universe. Oh, you don't want to live in Andromeda? I don't want to live in Andromeda. Okay. I really don't. Well, we're going to wrap up. Um, this week's One Dumb Thing. Do you want me to introduce you? you want to go? Uh, you know, it's my One Dumb Thing, but I think I want to hear your perspective oh, on okay. it. Because the reason it's on this list is because I introduced you to it. Yeah. Okay. So this week's one dumb thing is the Steam controller and the Steam link. Um, for those that don't know... Uh, Valve came up with a uh, small box that you hook up to your TV set that you can stream your games from your PC onto your TV. And the way you interface with this is via a controller. I mean, so you can play on your TV. It's it's going for more it, of a it's console It's like a experience. streaming box, like a... Um, God, my brain just went blank. The NVIDIA 
yeah, box. The, the shield. Shield. Yep. So the idea is to bring a, a PC game hardware backend and give you a console experience. Well, it connects to your PC. Right. So you have to have a Steam account. It right. has to be on the same network. It's running on your computer. So Sean gave me a little demonstration of this. He, <laughs> he purchased one. And there's a couple things I want to bring up. The Steam controller, when it came out, it's like, oh, we're joysticks. Joysticks are so old. We're getting we have rid a haptic of, interface. We're getting rid of joysticks. We're going to do a touch interface. It's going to give you the precision of a mouse and the haptic feedback and buttons. And it has so many buttons. Oh, my gosh. So many buttons. And so Sean was demonstrating. Did we even play a game with this we thing? We couldn't so- get one to work, actually. <laughs> so Sean's showing me. And I'm like, okay, it's like a trackpad essentially it's a over glorified trackpad and how you're interfacing with the uh the steam interface and we're trying to launch games and we're looking uh supports controller oh skyrim supports controller cool let's partially partially so we launched the game <laughs> cool loading uh title screen start game uh, we can't wait i'm pushing i'm pushing all the buttons can't can't start the game triggers oh, that's right the trigger is a primary not a or b or the lower you know quadrant four buttons the trigger is a main button on the steam controller so we're launching skyrim and we can't get the game to, we we didn't get the game to start because there's no input to select the mouse is hovered start game or continue whatever it said was play, highlighted actually is what play. it says was highlighted we were able to change where it was highlighted so the game was not locked up but we could not confirm (laughs) so then sean's like okay let me go to the steam community and they have button layouts or configurations ps4 has you know button mappings as well now and he's like okay let's look at some recommended button mappings for skyrim and so he downloads one and it's like oh it works great you know whatever it's the users can review the button mappings or configurations we launch it again and we still can't start the game okay so we we put skyrim to bed we're yep. like okay maybe there's just something weird yeah about, okay like, maybe it's that developer because the developers have to kind of include support correct right now the irony here is we also tried fallout 4 yep interestingly on the steam side neither of them say they support controllers completely their console games ported to pc yeah, that's the other thing these <laughs> these games were developed primarily for console why is it so and then do we we also tried a ps4 controller didn't we yes and we still had the same problems it's like it's made and it's like oh i, I don't i don't know you can't use a, you need a mouse and a keyboard for this game it's fallout it was made for the ps4 and xbox one yes why is this a thing so then we went to subnautica Yep. And tried to play that. What was happening? And we got it to run. Yep. But we couldn't get it to actually select play. (laughs) We were in the main screen and it wouldn't move. And it. No, we spent about 20, 30 minutes on this. And my overall experience was what? I mean, on paper, the idea is cool. The execution of said idea was very limiting and, and wanting more. Now, I have been able to play these games on my TV using the Steam Link. I can't account for why it didn't work that day, <laughs> which is a problem, right? So that tells one of the reasons I think this is one of the one-done things. The reason the Steam Link and, and similar things haven't taken off is also, what happens when you run that game, Jared, on your PC? Oh, it's running in full screen on his computer. You can't do anything on the computer because it's literally playing on the monitor on the computer as well. Yes. So if you use the Steam Link to stream it to your TV on a wired network, by the way, do not try it on a wireless network. You're going to have a bad time. um, It will take over your PC because you wouldn't want to do anything else, right? No. That's why you normally put your PC right next to your TV and feed it. Into the HDMI? Yeah, I was going to say, you couldn't you just, you know, and in, input in a USB controller that would work? You could, and that's the problem. <laughs> that is foundationally. So here's my thing. The Steam controller is also weird because it will replicate a keyboard, except that the left side of the keyboard is with the left interface and the right side of the keyboard is with the right interface. If you think about the PS4 controller and the touchpad in the center, it's actually not that hard to use, right? Yeah, and, I've used it before. It's kind of um, and you to... eventually get kind of the the Good. body language that goes yeah. with it. I have not been able, and this is like six months. 
I have not been able to get the Steam controller to feel natural. Well, and when you go to the keyboard thing, it's like, okay, when I'm typing, if you're a proper typer and you've learned the home row. Typist. Typist. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be uh, stereotyped here, but... Ooh. Um, yeah, but you're using two hands. You're to using do that. two hands, so it feels natural. There's a tactile but you're using response. Eight or nine fingers. Now, when you're using any, literally any other sort of uh, screen or uh, visual representation where you're putting inputting characters not on a keyboard, mouse, controller, etc., touchscreen, why would it limit you from use? You know how you can split off the keyboard on an iPad or, or an Android, yeah, like tablet. And but you can still take your left hand and touch and type the on right the other side. side. It just yeah. seems really weird. Well, and so I've had some friends who use the Steam Link and the Steam controller and have had great success with it, which is why I bought it because I'm like, hey, you know, I'm gonna try this out. And I think what it is is the the physical memory of how to use a dual analog controller, the designs we have on modern gaming consoles, is just so ingrained into my head. Well, it's a language that my body understands. It still translates to PC. PC gamers play with controllers. Yeah, I it, do too. It, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not like limited to just consoles. That's a natural gaming input device. And the dual thumb approach is a tactile thing for me. Right. Whereas the problem with the Steam controller is it's just these flat pads that sense where your pressure is and, the, and where your thumbs or your fingers are. And it just, there's no feedback. And that's why I, I, I just can't adapt to it. It just seems. I mean, I, I understand what they were. They're trying to innovate, and I have to give them credit for that. I totally do. I, I'm always happy when somebody's trying to do something different. You know, this has gone on much longer than our usual one done thing. So I think this is actually our last thoughts for yeah. this week. Yeah. So we should probably just wrap it up by saying, Steam controller, Steam Link. At least for us, we've had a really kind of negative experiences with it. Yeah. So you know, we'd leave it out to you guys. Um, have you used the Steam Link? Is that something that interests you? Is there some special trick that tricks your brain into thinking it's a good thing? Yeah, and I mean, do you use a Steam Link with a traditional controller? Have you had a good experience that way? I'm curious to know if anybody is even buying these things. Or is it another Ouya or NVIDIA Shield all over again? All right, with that, I think we're done for the week. So uh, don't forget to follow us at, at 4score7pongs on Twitter. And four score seven pongs on Facebook. And we are listening to feedback. Uh, and we're looking forward to all of your comments on anything you choose to comment on. Absolutely. And thank you to fan feedback. Sean will now take me outside and beat me with a <laughs> stick for mentioning Nintendo over Nintendo over my quota. Everybody, talk to you next time. This was a triumph. Making a note here, huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. We do what we must because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake You just keep on trying till you run out of cake Then the science gets done and you make a neat plan For the people who are still alive